Human Rights in Transit is a collaborative project that engages the ongoing and emerging tensions that are at the center of contemporary global existence. As people struggle for their lives as migrants, refugees, citizens, and indeed as humans, there is also a radical decentering and even crisis of the human underway. From technology, bioscience, and environmental transformations to decolonial critiques of humanism, the category of the human and the future of the humanities is deeply uncertain. This podcast features conversations on the myriad dynamics and processes that speak to the fact that human rights and the idea of the human are in transit. To inquire, learn more, or get involved, you can visit our website at u.osu.edu slash h-r-i-t. Hi, I'm Jennifer Suchland, Associate Professor at Ohio State University and part of the Human Rights in Transit project. I'm here today with my colleague. Hi, I'm Catherine Reno. I'm an Assistant Professor at OSU in History and Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies. Really glad to have you here today to talk about human rights, multiple origin stories. And origin stories for human rights are really important for thinking about human rights today also in the past, but really thinking about the future of human rights. So typical origin story for human rights um, is the 1948, right, UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Mm -hmm. That's what most people uh, in the West really look to as a date for the origin of, of human rights. But the Western idea of human rights has a much longer intellectual history and, and legacy. In particular, I think we need to think about really three distinct concepts at play here, the human rights, and then finally putting those two together, human rights. So for example, the human as a kind of universal subject that emerged in the 18th century um, that also enabled you know, critiques of divine rule, um, we haven't always had that concept, right? Mm -hmm. It uh, hasn't always existed. And in much Enlightenment thinking, for example, the human was perceived as an individual subject mm -hmm. um, or someone, to quote uh, Sir William Blackstone, mm -hmm. uh, capable of exercising independent moral judgment. Mm -hmm. So first we have this concept of the human that emerges, uh, you know, big, in part in the 18th century with Enlightenment thinking. Um, and alongside that concept of the human, we have this notion of rights. Mm -hmm. And what is important here is to recall how, uh, you know, with the concept of rights, there is the emergence of secular sovereign rule. And, and in fact, the, the legitimation of secular sovereign rule rests in part on this idea that the government should be protecting the so-called natural rights that are endowed in, in humans. Mm -hmm. And this is a real shift. Um, rights are thus not the reward for divine behavior, but naturally endowed um, in people, in humanity. So here, uh, in this concept, you know, of, of, of the human and rights, people are probably very familiar, at least in the United States, with the classic phrase, uh, you know, written by Thomas Jefferson, 
uh, in the Declaration of Independence, quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, unquote, <laughs> right? So um, in the Declaration of Independence, you have the founding of the intertwined ideas of secular political authority and human rights. And then probably, Catherine, you'll recall that um, Hannah Arendt, you know, much later than, than the Declaration of Independence makes its claim, makes this claim that human rights are really citizenship rights, right? right? That, that no one but a citizen can claim, can claim human rights, uh, which has had really profound impact um, on those who do not have those citizenship rights, right? Exactly. Refugees, uh, people with, you know, people who don't have citizenship for a variety of reasons. Mm. Um, okay, so I talked just briefly. I'm kind of giving this intro here, but the so the concept of the human, the concept of rights, but those uh, alone do not create what we think of in modern times as "quote unquote" human rights. Mm -hmm. And so here. Um, I think what we need to think of, you know, what we need to to turn to is, you know, what allows us to um, consider human rights as something important, you know, um, globally, but also within the confines of the nation state. Mm -hmm. And here, I, I really um, enjoy uh, Professor Lynn Hunt. Um, she's a professor at UCLA, well, you know, well known and renowned, and she makes a really interesting argument in her recent book called "Inventing Human Rights" that essentially empathy. Uh, a kind of empathy um, emerged in the 18th century, which thus allowed for people to um, understand or have empathy for other people's suffering. Mm -hmm. And in understanding or, or feeling rather, really feeling that the pain that other people experience is the same pain that one experiences in their mm -hmm. own life, opened up what she calls an imagined empathy, right? Right. Um, intonating a bit to um, Benedict Anderson's idea of imagined community is this mm -hmm. concept that um, he develops to think about the rise of nationalism, mm -hmm. right? Uh, that people imagine themselves to be part of a wider community. Similarly, imagined empathy does this for human rights. Mm. And so I just want to mention that um, she points in particular to the readership of no novels and such as uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau's uh, Julie, uh, which is a 1761 novel. And um, she traces, tries to trace in her book, you know, the popular reception of this book that opened up a sense of empathy that then got people thinking about things like a torture being inhuman, mm. right? Inhumane, rather. Mm -hmm. um, so um, this is key because imagining that someone else is like you requires a kind of leap of faith. I guess she talks about that. Absolutely. It's interesting because this argument about empathy reemerges in the later 20th century in, the, in these two pivotal moments that historians see as critical to the sort of um, transition from a national rights of man language into an international human rights moment in the 40s and the 70s with um, sort of extending Lynn Hunt's arguments about empathy through reading novels to empathy and seeing photography of the Great Depression um, from Dorothea Lange's Migrant Mother, for instance, um, to the 70s reading about um, um, the Gulags and the Gulag Archipelago mm -hmm. by Al mm -hmm. Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This is an argument that Mark Philip Bradley, um, a historian, makes in his recent book, The World Reimagined, Americans and Human Rights in the 20th Century. 
and um, these two moments, historians argue, are really critical to this sort of expansion of human rights um, to something that could transcend the nation state, something where international law could perhaps protect individuals mm-hmm. um, and transcend the authority of the nation state. And as you mentioned, the 1948 UN Universal Declaration of Human Rights was is viewed as really pivotal to this moment. Um, although um, some historians like Samuel Moyne tend to sort of have, have dismissed in a way out of hand the, the 40s as a pivotal moment and, and also dismisses in some ways these enlightenment notions mm-hmm. of human rights. Mm-hmm. His argument is sort of that seeing these as the precursors or the origins of human rights allows us to perhaps celebrate um, a history that he says maybe had more cynical origins. And he, right. he really argues for the expansion in his book, The Last Utopia, of a sort of deep politicized um, moral type of human rights that emerged in the 1970s through Jimmy Carter's presidency and geopolitical um, goals that um, he shows human rights as this sort of way for the U.S. to redeem itself after the failures of the Vietnam War. Mm. Um, And he also says that by calling human rights the last utopia, he argues that it took the place of um, gaps left by other utopias in the past that had perhaps... um, like socialism and in decolonization of the 50s and 60s. Um, and he shows this this engram that, that demonstrates how even in public consciousness, even though the 40s represented the ushering in of new UN instruments for international human rights, in terms of public consciousness, he argues it wasn't really pivotal until the 70s and has this engram that shows the, the oh, real explosion of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but then others have really claimed that in some ways Moyne's argument and his book really helped put human rights into the center of historical conversation. Um, But historians have also argued that this overlooks the very political meaning that human rights still did have in the 1970s. So other historians like Patrick William Kelly, who's working on a a really fabulous book on um, the role of Latin American activists in the 1970s moment of human rights shows that um, Marxists, uh, leftists, um, sort of political exiles from Chile and other Latin American countries really did have a politicized politicized meaning of human rights and were arguing for um, collective rights as much as individual rights. Mm. Um, And, and and although groups like Amnesty International played a really large role, and and he agrees that they they were sort of promoting a depoliticized moral meaning of human rights, it was really the collaboration between these various groups that helped push human rights to the fore, and that were um, grounded as much in really material struggles and collective struggles as in individual human mm-hmm. rights language and Jimmy Carter's efforts on the world stage. Yeah, that's really interesting, and I think. What some of that research really reveals, you know, if we're talking about origin stories for human rights, uh, that despite the fact that, for example, you know, in the 18th century, with the emergence of the kind of intellectual moment of of claiming so-called human rights, that despite the claim that they are self-evident, for example, mm-hmm. or that they are universal, that in fact they're they're actually constantly reemerging, um, and that sort of origin stories are. You know, exam. You talk about the '40s. You talk about the '70s. There, are, uh, you know, moments mm. that are even more contemporary that um, are origin stories in terms of emergence of new understandings of human rights. Right. right? Uh, so, what I would say in terms of 
some of that research that you're mentioning that's really interesting is that it really just shows the the contestedness, really mm-hmm. ongoing contestedness of what are human rights, right? Uh, and and in that regard, I think one thing that you also mentioned that is really important in terms of um, you know sort of these ongoing tensions or questions regarding human rights is this is is the tension between the individual and the collective, right? Uh, and this is definitely present in contemporary human rights discourse. Um, it's also evident, for example, in the 1980s, when you have uh, feminists claiming, quote unquote, women's rights are humans' rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, that, that raises a whole other set, set of questions. But before we get to, to that, actually, let's think for a moment uh, about just sort of other origin stories. So mm-hmm. we really began with, you know, as I, I gave the intro regarding these concepts of the human and rights and then human rights, this is a Western history, a Western genealogy mm-hmm. for so-called human rights. So I think it's important to recognize uh, sort of the internal contradictions within that mm-hmm. origin story, mm-hmm. but then also to really shift the origin, right? right. To really look at other places for um, origin stories. And so I just want to mention first that um, that I think it's very important to think to recall that that the idea of the human that's really at the center of Western human rights uh, is the same concept that initiated and validated uh, colonialism and slavery. Mm-hmm. So that very concept of the human uh, helps classify those who are subhuman or not quite human. Mm-hmm. And in that regard, um, this so-called human of the human rights is undeniably part of the origin story of colonialism and, and slavery. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this regard, we need to always remember sort of the Janus-faced nature of, of, of the human and, and human rights. Uh, so, and this critique, you know, of, of human rights is actually quite old and maybe... Um, you know, those who are familiar with with uh, Spanish colonialism will recall that uh, Bartolomé de las Casas documented with horror in the 15th century, right, the inhumane treatment of indigenous peoples um, by Spanish conquistadors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so from the very beginning, there were witnesses to the inhumanity, right, of, of colonialism, of so-called the, the um, recognition of the human mm-hmm. and, and what have you. And then even more contemporarily, we have uh, Caribbean philosopher Sylvia Winter, who argues that the concept of the of man itself, or um, the human, emerged with and through Western colonial modernity. And what she argues is that we have to now, because of because of its indelible mark, uh, you know, there's no way to get outside of the coloniality of man or mm. human, that we have to think about other ways of being human, mm. uh, which I think is a really profound, um, it's a, you know, profound request upon us to, to, to do that. Right. And maybe we can explore more later some sure. of the ways that we can think about that in our contemporary moment. And thinking of what you were saying about the, um, the always exclusionary notion of human and, mm-hmm. and human rights, also thinking about Thomas Jefferson's own mm-hmm. words in which, you know, mm-hmm. he declared equality for every man, but really meant by man, white landholding mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. and and how the, you know, the U.S. Constitution reinforced the system of, of slavery in the United States and how um, and also how this was also exclusionary, of course, of of women as well. Um, so. 
And it's interesting, however, that that very language then impelled groups excluded from the qualities of citizen, from human, from man to press using using that very mm-hmm. sort of language of rights to to press for their inclusion in in these categories. Um, and so, another example of of that sort of crit- early critique. Um, and early origins of, of, of human rights comes from the Haitian Revolution from 1791 mm. to 1804, the largest and most successful slave rebellion. And um, historian Laurent Dubois has argued that we should look at the Haitian Revolution alongside the French and U.S. revolutions if we want to understand the origins of, of human rights. He calls it the most radical assertion of the right to have rights in human history. Um, and his work also reminds me of... Patrick William Kelly's in some ways, the, mm-hmm. and looking at the global South's role of the 1970s moment of human rights, where he sees, he sort of argues against this dichotomous view of a Western rights construct versus a sort of third world or um, non-Western rights construct and sort of sees a series of feedback loops historically. Yeah. And, and I think Du Bois sees that as well in the Haitian Revolution, where he sees these enlightenment principles of universalism being forwarded in ways that were not anticipated by mm-hmm. the um, you know, French revolutionary uh, underwriters of slavery and colonialism. And he also points out that since most of these participants in the Haitian Revolution were not only slaves, but had come through the Middle Passage from Central Africa, it really demands that we reorient our geography and Mm -hmm. and epistemological geography of human rights from Mm -hmm. the U.S., Western Europe toward Africa and the Caribbean. And there are other examples that we can even see within the United States of um, people of color pushing for an expansion of – not only rights like abolitionists and you know suffragists, but an expansion of human rights and and really propelling the meaning of human rights. So you you have it, the 1945 creation of the United Nations in San Francisco that inaugurated the UN Charter that wrote human rights into the Charter. Um, NAACP activists like W.E.B. Du Bois, William Wright, Mary McLeod Bethune, who were all pushing for a very broad meaning of human rights and were pushing for the inclusion of human rights in the charter. They wanted human rights mm-hmm. to mean economic and social rights, rights to have food, clothing, education. Um, they also wanted to end lynching and end discrimination um, against African-Americans in the U.S., but they were also allying with um, activists from India who are pushing against colonialism and wanted that to be a promise of human rights at this SF you know, conference. Um, and it's interesting to note that one of the biggest voices against the inclusion of human rights in the mm-hmm. UN Charter at this moment was, in fact, the United States itself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so the, the U.S. delegation all really were conscious of the fact that that human rights could mean holding the U.S. responsible for these promises, these rights promises to African-Americans specifically and in the Jim Crow South specifically when they knew they were going to have to appeal to Southern Democrats to pass the um, U.N. Charter. And one of the U.S. delegates to this conference was a Texas senator who had himself scuttled three anti-lynching bills in Congress. And so the U.S. really actively worked against the the role of these these people who came as consultants to this meeting um, and Mm. pushed human rights. But I found role um, in my own work looks at the role of um, feminists and especially from Latin America in, in these years to push a human rights agenda. And I've also found more expansive meanings of human rights that, that do transcend the individual in um, in Latin America, and especially in a, a group of Latin American popular front activists and, and governments that were 
trying to push to the fore a um, a broad meaning of human rights that it, that did include economic and social rights and welfare. They internationalized this language of the rights of man. Um, they fought against imperialism and fascism, and they also um, often spoke out for the rights of indigenous people and um, and and against discrimination based on race and religion. And the first time, actually, I found that the that um, human rights, or in this case, derechos humanos, was used as a resolution at an intergovernmental conference was at this 1938 Pan American mm. conference in Lima, where um, representatives from Cuba and Mexico, then um, sort of governed by leftist state leaders, were pushing for resolutions that um, that pushed against racism and mm-hmm. also for women's rights. Mm-hmm. And this question of women's rights that you raised earlier is really a prime example of how what we think of as universal human rights often is not as universal as it seems. So it really has begged the question, you know, if human rights are universal, then why do human rights even need to exist as its own category? And um, some of this work that I was just describing that my research on Latin American feminists reveals early efforts to push an expansive meaning of of women's international women's rights into intergovernmental bodies um, and um, the this movement of pan-american feminism that really thrived from the 1920s through the 40s um, demonstrates a variety of different objectives for mm-hmm. these goals so there were um, the backbone of this movement, I see, was this group of popular front feminists that I'm describing, pushing for a really broad, diverse collect- collective, social and, and and individual rights. But there were also more conservative notions, uh, conservative ways mm-hmm. that feminists were deploying the no- notion of international women's rights. And okay. historians have looked at how um, big, you know, Western European dominated groups like the International Council of Women, International Women's Suffrage Alliance in these years, promoted an, a notion of international sisterhood, but were really um, in the same way sort of exerting colonial authority mm-hmm. over mm-hmm. Um, women from, um, from in many cases, um, Latin America, the, what we think of now as the global south, viewed these women as benighted and as in need of leadership. And in some ways, some Latin American feminists who were elite, educated in Western sort of logics and institutions, also promoted a similar sort of mm-hmm. um, colonialist view of feminism. In fact, one of the sort of ironies is that the Berta Lutz, the Brazilian feminist, who was the leader at the United Nations Conference in, 1930, in 1945, really promoted women's rights and included in the UN Charter, allied with a lot of um, countries that were pushing against U.S. hegemony, she herself was a, a colonialist and outspoken admirer of British Empire and mm-hmm. um, believed that international levers for human rights, for women's rights, could um, uplift um, not only these women from more benighted countries, but also from from her own country in, in Brazil. Mm-hmm. So it's a complicated um, history and movement that... Um, reveals that even when um, feminists were demanding things like women's rights, um, just as you were mentioning, Mm -hmm. uh, human rights being sort of trapped in a um, sometimes colonial logics, Mm -hmm. the same Mm -hmm. could be true of these Mm -hmm. feminist activists. Well, just really quickly, it also just speaks to what we were mentioning earlier around human rights being 
um, a category of the state, mm-hmm. right? So if the very existence of the state, <clears throat> as many states are, is a, is a colonial project, right, then even claims for human rights as a device of the state can extend the reach of that colonial project, right? And so right. That, I think that example really speaks to speaks to that tension. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a lot of these feminists were very ambivalent about state power and about the power of their own governments, and yet they were... And, and arguing mm-hmm. in some ways for, for international law to transcend the nation state, but in other mm-hmm. ways they were, um, they were reinforcing state power and acting mm-hmm. as delegates mm-hmm. of their states chosen to go to these international conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, something that is unique, I think, about this movement, or that n- perhaps not unique because it emerges in other places around the world too, but there was this regional sense of solidarity as Latin American countries in the face of U.S. empire um, among many of these Spanish-speaking mm-hmm. anti-imperialist feminists, and they connected a notion of international sovereignty, um, a notion of international, of, sorry, individual sovereignty as women with a notion of of national sovereignty mm-hmm. in the face of U.S. empire. But mm-hmm. that, again, sort of reinforces the the importance of the nation-state to this mm-hmm. project. Mm-hmm. Um, something about this movement, too, that is uh, interesting in terms of origin stories is that it, it was in some ways an earlier precursor to the global feminism that we often think arose later in the 1970s, right. for instance, with the International Women's Year Conference in Mexico City um, that launched the UN Decade for Women and and also a precursor to a later rhetoric of in the 80s and 90s of, that women's rights are human rights. Uh, that really took off in these decades. And these are the subject of your own really excellent book, Economies of Violence, Transnational Feminism, Post-Socialism, and the Politics of Sex Trafficking, which shows in a lot of ways how human rights as women's rights came to be defined in a very particular way. And um, in spite of maybe some deep politicized mm-hmm. messages around it, was always connected to mm-hmm. um, politics and and economics in particular so for sure the economic piece and that was really important I think that you uh, clarified that when we think of human rights there are often sort of these subcategories so political rights social rights Mm -hmm. economic rights Mm -hmm. and that um, you know it's stated that you sort of quote-unquote the easiest of rights to extend are the political Mm -hmm. Um, not that that suffrage you know wasn't a struggle but that uh, that you know when you shift to things like economic rights um, that that's where um, you find a lot of resistance Right. You know, mm-hmm. um, but it was interesting and, uh, and, you know, researching the history of, of human trafficking law in, as, as a, you know, part of international human, human rights law that, uh, you know, I had to, you know, I did look a lot at that, um, sort of the decade for women starting in 1975, as you mentioned, uh, and, and also looking at the sort of later 80s and 90s. And um, what I really learned a lot about was, uh, in part, sort of the inherent bias of the concept of a human uh, in terms of how human rights doctrine um, has recognized certain forms of violence, for mm-hmm. example. So, uh, and so human trafficking or sex trafficking in you know, the 80s and 90s gets picked up as an issue of violence against women. Mm-hmm. So this is what helps propel it into the public sphere anew um, given that it had sort of remained, you know, a, a, you know, 
sort of on the shelf of the United Nations collecting dust. Mm-hmm. So the uh, the work that had been done previously had 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 uh, really become stagnant, and um, and so feminists you know reinvigorate attention um, by putting focus on violence against women, and and I think also that that. In general, what I what I learned there, and that others have written about, is that violence that, in particular, women and girls experience, was not actually first conceived of in the domain of human rights. Mm-hmm. Uh, I suppose another way to put that is that the gender of the human was not revealed fully, mm. and I would include here women, girls, and gender nonconforming people as. Um, you know, as from 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 the eighties to the contemporary, we've had increased recognition of women, the experiences of violence that women, girls, and trans people experience, and gender nonconforming people experience, and that this is now becoming recognized as part of human rights mm. uh, doctrine. So, thinking a bit historically about how this how this happened or how this emerged, I think um, a couple of examples will be helpful here. Um, so I'm thinking in particular about the 1990s with the conflict in the former Yugoslavia, that it's at this moment that wartime rape is recognized as a crime against humanity. Uh, so protection f- against gender violence in general, as I was mentioning, was not recognized as a human right um, until feminists declared, yes, women's rights are human rights. Um and um, in order for the um, wartime rape to be recognized in the 90s, the sort of precursor, the work that had to be done was was really um, started, uh, you know, as I was mentioning in the, in the 70s and 80s. And I think that uh, a good touchstone here in terms of the impact that feminist organizing was having at that time came about at the 1993 World Conference on Human Rights. And at this conference, it was a massive intervention. There was a global tribunal created um, on violence against women in which you had um, women from around the world talking about different forms of violence that they were experiencing, whether mm-hmm. or not it was domestic, domestic violence or rape. There was an example of, uh, of trafficking. Um, which they called sexual slavery at the time. Mm. Uh, so all these different testimonies mm. put together at this global tribunal really pushed the 1993 World Conference on Human Rights, which wasn't going to talk about violence against women, to recognize viol- gender violence mm. as as central. Uh, and so from that moment, I would say that... Um, the you know the use of rape as, as a as a tool of war in the 1990s in the in the Yugoslav uh, former Yugoslavia the war in the former Yugoslavia um, set up the ability again there was a fight there was there was definitely a struggle but um, there were some intellectual precursors for that mm. uh, and I would say too more recently if you want to think about not gender nonconforming or just in general LGBTQI rights again not considered as part of the human not the way in which we understand a basic principle of, of human rights that in 2013 uh, the OHCHR which is the Office for the High Commissioner of Human Rights it's part of the United Nations launched what they call the UN Free and Equal campaign and it's a global informational campaign for LGBTQI rights, uh, and this was as the result of a lot of uh, of lobbying and organizing inside and outside of the United Nations. Uh, and again, uh, more in 2015, there was a joint UN statement on 
ending violence and discrimination against lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and intersex people. Mm -hmm. And this was endorsed by 12 UN entities. So this example, along with the Violence Against Women example, really illustrates, again, the, um, the ways that human rights uh, have never been universal, mm. right? That there's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, sort of at, at various historical moments, there's a recognition of the incompleteness of human rights. Uh, right. And they both also get to the importance um, of first-person testimony, too, mm. in these cases, which is mm-hmm. also really prominent in the cases against uh, state violence um, in many international tribunals that emerged after mm-hmm. um, in sort of Latin American dictatorships from the 70s as well. And sort of reminds me, too, again, of that point that Lynn Hunt make about, mm-hmm. made about the importance of identifying yes. and empathy mm-hmm. with um, with human sort of mm-hmm. uh, tragedy and, and experiences. Mm-hmm. of, And that can be really double-edged, I would say. And there's a lot of great research on, on this. And I would say, you know, for any sort of beginner to human rights, wanting to understand its history and, and what have you, that empathy plays a very complicated role, I would say. Um, so I agree with Lynn Hunt. But I would say that the empathy uh, can be manipulated, Mm. right, to both sort of sensationalize certain forms of violence, Mm -hmm. which may then make us, you know, as 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 consumers, Mm -hmm. really, of that suffering desensitized. Right, right. So um, and this returns a bit to your um, comments earlier about, you know, is a claim for human rights a political or a moral argument, Mm. right? And so in the ways that empathy can be peddled as a commodity, right, then it becomes an overly politicized, Mm -hmm. right, claim, and and, and not, um, or not also a, a just a register of, you know, we as a society will not go beyond these parameters of how we treat each other Mm. or what are the basic principles of livability, for Mm. example. Right. Right. I mean, there's another way it becomes political in a, in an important way where, um, I mean, the the way that I'm thinking about its importance could also be in terms of state states controlling the narrative. And this mm-hmm. was true in a lot of Latin American dictatorships in which mm-hmm. state archives of police violence were, you know, hidden or not revealed. And so one of the important sort of goals of um, of people in these communities whose loved ones have been disappeared was finding out the truth and finding out sort of mm-hmm. uncovering the sort of stories. And so I think in mm-hmm. other ways, the testimony becomes, can become politically important when, and it reminds us too of why history is, is important too to human rights is um, understanding who controls the narrative of the past. And, mm-hmm. and when, um, and I think that those voices could be, you know, insights into histories that are trying to deliberately be mm-hmm. silenced um mm-hmm. for sure but it's true that they can also be manipulated easily too mm-hmm. or sort of mm-hmm. taken out of context or um mm-hmm. and that particular voices get privileged still over others in terms Absolutely. of testimony yeah and at what moments do we have empathy mm-hmm. you know for certain forms of violence right. right or inequality um which actually speaks a bit to another sort of tension that the um 
you know, in recognizing what I was calling earlier the inherent bias to the concept of the human of human rights, mm-hmm. there's also a kind of uh, false, I would say, false universalism, mm-hmm. right? Where we have many controversies in the contemporary, you know, longstanding, but also in the contemporary that uh, that speak to this. And so, what I would say is that even within the domain of so-called women's rights, mm-hmm. you know, who are these women? Right? Uh, is woman a universal category? And I would say that that I that I, I don't think so. Right? If you um, look at the history of what that concept has meant, and uh, in terms of what rights the the, the so called woman's rights, um, you know, what does it invoke? What what are those right. rights? And I would just mention briefly here, you know, the ongoing controversies both in Europe and the United States regarding. Uh, the uh, Muslim women wearing of headscarves, mm-hmm. right? Different different forms of headscarf uh, scarves are, are worn, and and different cultural practices, and that this has become a touchstone mm-hmm. uh, around women's rights. So right. some, you know, are claiming that you know wearing the uh, you know a different form of headscarf uh, is actually an act of empowerment, mm-hmm. whereas. For some, not wearing and isn't actually a critique of their their culture or their religion, but more just an individual choice, right? Right. Um, but in you know countries all over Europe, uh, as well as in the United States, um, you know it's the symbol of the of the of the headscarf, particularly you know um, in its forms of the niqab and the and the um, the burqa. You know, are these signs of the lack of women's rights? Right. And has unfortunately really fueled Islamophobia, uh, which is really kind of ironic in terms of thinking about human rights. Right. right? That's something that is so supposedly this touchstone of women's rights has actually decreased the a level of, of of safety and and um, equality that uh, Muslim citizens experience in countries like France or you know, Belgium, Austria, uh, Germany, uh, Spain, right. right? All of these countries that have, to different degrees, have basically regulated where and 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 to what extent women can cover, right? Right. right. Um, including these so-called um, um, Bercolini, right? The, the swimsuit, the full body swimsuit that uh, was at one point, I believe, um, illegal in France uh, and. Uh, I think a higher court has now you know, overruled that. Mm. But even the controversy of what kind of swimsuit, right? right. And these are really supposedly touchstones of women's rights mm-hmm. um, or how they're understood in, in these countries. Right. Uh, but that's, you know, but again, is that a, is that a false universal um, given that there's a, there's actually a controversy about that? Right, exactly. Right. I mean, the, the, the movement that I look at, Pan-American feminism, really revolved around debates over how universal women's rights were and um and the i mean one of this this legacy this history of us <clears throat> touting its victories in women's rights as a model for other nations to follow and and um even using its as a pretext for geopolitical maneuverings in these countries as a long you know history dating back to the um at least to the Spanish American war and um and and it comes up so many times in these, um, I mean, often the debates that I look at fractured be- between U.S. feminists who were proclaiming that Latin American feminists needed the right to vote and Latin American feminists who 
often we're pushing for suffrage, but also demanding mm-hmm. other rights mm-hmm. is just as important, um, including sort of um, economic rights, social rights, which U.S. Latin American feminists were sort of more um, uh, advanced than U.S. feminists in pushing for state-sponsored maternity legislation, and then also connecting um, gender state violence to um, to U.S. empire often as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so absolutely agree that this notion women's rights is not at all, you know, it proclaims to be universal, mm-hmm. but is not. Mm-hmm. Um, but the examples that you're talking about at the both the burqa pull us back into sort of contemporary um, debates and um, definitely is one of the live debates today around around human rights and women's rights. Um, and so maybe we could just talk a little bit more about some some contemporary and current claims to human rights that people are familiar with today. Um, two that come to mind um, are that 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 are big issues in the U.S. that some people I think don't realize are also connected to international human rights are um, the movements around Standing Rock and Black Lives Matter um, in in. Uh, North Dakota, in in the, the Dakota Access Pipeline, um, uh, Amnesty International and other human rights groups have been calling this a violation of indigenous human rights. And Amnesty International deployed human rights investigators to Standing Rock um, and is still seeking to protect protesters and journalists who've been speaking out. Um, they often invoke the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People that was adopted in 2007, which recognizes rights to land, territories, and resources, and right to redress. And I think this connects to points that you made earlier about mm-hmm. the way that we need to think beyond the human, perhaps, to the environment and land. Um, when we think about human rights. For Black Lives Matter, um, there are ways in which people are also trying to push this into the realm of international human rights. So, for example, in 2014, lawyers brought the case of Israel Hernandez, an 18-year-old who was tased to death by a Miami police officer to the UN Committee Against Torture after getting nowhere with the state of Florida. And people on the ground say that the Miami Beach Police Department responded to this pressure in part by revising its policy regarding the use of tasers. Um, at the same time, both of these issues, which are still um, may, still just um, incredibly pressing um, issues today, um, reveal the challenges of, of using international human rights and 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 the challenges of rights language in general sometimes mm-hmm. for addressing issues that need to be um, addressed in more deeper and systemic ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that reminds me actually of sort of what is the work of human rights. And I think there's both a sort of symbolic as well as a um, sort of material outcome, right, or hoped desire, um, you know, outcome for that. And we see that, too, with a... um, with a recent um, initiative coming out of Chicago that is um, called We Charge Genocide and actually is claiming a, um, a connection to a 1951 um, petition that was called We Charge Genocide 
and it was a historic petition to the UN for relief from a crime um, from um, the crime of the U.S. government against the so-called Negro people. Mm-hmm. So again, as I said, this is in 1951, and it was put forward uh, by the Civil Rights Congress in the United States. And again, using testimony and talking about you know over a hundred cases of police violence and other forms of of um, discrimination and violence, uh, and drawing upon the um, the UN Genocide Convention mm-hmm. to claim, you know, at that time in 1951, symbolically that African Americans are experiencing genocide mm-hmm. in the United States. Well, this petition and the language of this petition gets picked up. It has been picked up again by initiative in Chicago called We Charge Genocide. Mm-hmm. And they, too, are trying to shine a light on the specific experiences of youth and others in Chicago who experience police brutality. And uh, it speaks to bo- both sort of the symbolic aspect, right, to claim mm-hmm. genocide, um, to, which um, makes a claim of structural violence, mm-hmm. um, as well as a kind of a specific targeting of a group of people. Right. And and so this is a symbolic gesture, but it's a it's also a. Um, you know, a material argument mm-hmm. for for reparations for for uh, uh, for the state to to recognize it's what it has done, right? right? And to change its behavior and and to think about the the social, the economic, the political, the psychic violence, right? Right. Uh, so I think that really connects you know, to your examples and also just, you know, speaks to, again, you know, what can international human rights do? Absolutely. Uh, yeah, it seems like the, um, I mean, the, the way in which international human rights law becomes most useful is not just by sort of um, existing on paper, by, but, by, but through the sort of collective action of social movements and grassroots movements to sort of make, mm-hmm. make them meaningful. And, to, um, and I think there's often connections between these, um, these charters and, and laws, which in, in and of themselves perhaps don't um, deliver redress, mm-hmm. but, but often provide a, um, a sort of a legitimization of mm-hmm. of social movements. Um, and what you were talking about reminds me as well as uh, of the way that archival evidence and truth claims have become the basis for human rights. And the conversation we had about testimony relates to this. Um, Kirsten Weld, a historian, recently wrote a book called Paper Cadavers, which looks at the ways that that people on the ground in Guatemala whose families had been disappeared, as well as um, NGOs and activists came together to uncover the Guatemala State Police Archive that allowed a lot of um, people to make demands for redress. And the um, and and she ex- she explores how more recently in 2010, uh, or more recently over the past several decades, people have filed for writ of habeas data um, to get an individual to petition our government for the information mm. it holds, and um, and how these things can be used collectively. As in the 2010 case, the Inter-American Court on Human Rights ruled that the Brazilian government re- released information of over 70 people who were in a guerrilla movement um, that had disappeared during the dictatorship and the court mandated broad repertory measures. Um, and you see this in other countries, Cambodia, Argentina, Colombia, um, Peru, where, um, redress, um, 
comes in many different forms, re- reparations, um, community justice, mm-hmm. um, recognition from international tribunals. Mm-hmm. So, Well, that's interesting. So I'd like to actually end with um, one more example. And this actually connects to what you were referencing earlier uh, in terms of indigenous rights. Uh, and I'm reminded of how our whole actually conceptualization of human rights is really actually now going undergoing a profound transformation in the context of the Anthropocene. And so this term Anthropocene is the geological term now used to demark the period in which humanity has made a dominant and permanent mark on the earth. So people, communities, and entire countries, such as islands and coastal cities, are unable to stay alive uh, in the Anthropocene. Um, and this future of unlivability you know, will certainly expand and is well illustrated and, and inflected in the current uh, Syrian crisis, where there's obviously a political crisis, but part of that um, has been an an environmental crisis, right? It has um, been a part of fueling uh, political conflict as well as exacerbating it. So uh, in this context, many are calling for a paradigm shift away from individual rights. So the economic, political, social, all of those rights really have been understood at the level of the individual although contestedly, as you've, if you've reminded us, um, so move away from individual rights to thinking in terms of humanity writ large and, and even at the level of the planet. Uh, in this perspective, I would just say, has, has always been a part of many indigenous cosmologies of the integrity of life, right? The precarity of life um, and interrelationship between between the land, uh, resources, and people, and spirituality. And interestingly, uh, former president, French president, Francois Hollande, asked the Minister of Environment, Corinne Lepage, to draft a so-called Universal Declaration of the Rights of Humanity, um, which is now a document and readable in 12 or 15 languages. So I think that uh, again, the to sort of end here, the future of the human and human rights is quite unknown. And in that unknown, possibly new origin stories will emerge. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> that would be great. Right. Thank you. Thank you.